So we began a new series last week. We're going to work our way through the book of Joshua. And so we began last week in chapter 1 and looked at what being strong and courageous entailed. And this week the bulk of our time will be spent in the first half of chapter 2. Now, the, the plan is to cover the whole book, but not necessarily every single verse in great detail. We want to get the whole story. We want to get all the, the big themes and the big ideas. Uh, but we won't be reading every single verse in worship. So maybe what you could do, since we're only in our Bible reading plan reading a chapter a day, uh, use some of that extra time that you find there uh, to fill in some of the gaps. Um, last week I mentioned to you some of the reasons why I wanted us to spend time in, in this book. Understanding Joshua's story helps us understand the story in a real sense. Uh, Jesus understood that all of Scripture was about him. Uh, and so there are things even in Joshua that will help us understand his person and his work. Um, I also mentioned to you that Joshua would help us to behold our God together, uh, to see him in the pages of Joshua, And some of what we will see there uh, about him is, is explicit. It will just be directly stated there on the page for us, right? Uh, the Lord our God is, is giving us this land. Um, the Lord our God will fight for us. We'll, we'll see those things just uh, leap off the page. Uh, but some of what we'll see will be more implicit. If we will pay careful attention... Uh, we'll see, even as we'll see from, from the, the text this morning, we're going to see his sovereign hand at work. It's the thing that has really impressed me this week from spending time in kind of the end of chapter 1 and, and certainly getting into chapter 2. Just his sovereign hand at work, his sovereign hand moving in some pretty amazing ways and in some ways that I think will really build our faith together as we look at them. So if you are able, I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Though we'll cover a little bit more than this, I want to focus our reading just on uh, verses 1 through 14 in chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. 
And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord God gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. May the Lord add His blessing to the teaching and to the hearing of His inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative Word. Let's pray together. Father, our our prayer is simply the song that we just sang, that you would speak, that you would reveal Christ to us, even though he's not mentioned by name in this passage, but that you would show us and help us to understand this portion of the story of Joshua and of two spies and of Rahab, and that in doing so, you would help us to gain a greater understanding of of the story, and that understanding Rahab's salvation might help us understand our own. God, show us your sovereign hand at work in the pages of Joshua, that we might see your sovereign hand at work on the pages of our very lives. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So you've got an outline in the worship folder. I hope that will be helpful to you. I want to be clear. I've listed three specific ways that I think in in this portion of Joshua we can see God's sovereign hand moving in the hearts of His people, in the hearts of His enemies, and even in the hearts of those that he's calling to himself. And, and it's that last point we'll, where we will spend the bulk of our time. And so you see on the, the outline there uh, some further points that I've listed. Again, just trying uh, to help us with clarity. So we see God's sovereign hand on display as he moves in the hearts of his people. And so there's a loose end here that I want to tie up from the end of chapter 1, though we haven't read those verses Uh, Last week, God was speaking to Joshua in the presence of the people, uh, reaffirming and reassuring both Joshua and the people that it is, in fact, Joshua who is to be Moses' successor and who is to lead God's people as they take possession of the Promised Land. And so after that, Joshua immediately gets to work. And so he's going through the camp and he's telling folks, all right, let's get ready. 
Because in three days, we're crossing over. In three days, we're crossing the Jordan and we're going to begin making our way to the promised land. So after he says that, there's this interesting little address that he gives to the tribes that are on the other side of of the Jordan. There's a backstory here. It's found in Numbers 32 if you wanted to to read that on your own later. Uh, But I've got a a map for you that we can throw up there, and it's going to get bigger in just a second. Don't worry. Um, But to the east of the Jordan, you've got the tribes of Gad and Reuben and and half of the, the tribe of Manasseh. And, and they requested to settle in territory that once belonged to the kings Sihon and Og, which you heard in the passage as it was read. Uh, zoom in a little bit there on that next one. And so it's that area there in, in the big red oval that is east of the Jordan and that is south of the Sea of Galilee, the little body of water up there at the top. And so this land is actually outside of the promised land. And so when these tribes requested of Moses uh, this land, here's where we want to settle, uh, Moses was hot. <laughs> Moses was pretty upset by this request. And he, he saw it as somewhat of a betrayal by these tribes that they wanted to live outside of the promised land he saw it, frankly, as a lack of faith in God. This was prime pasture land. This was good land for grazing. And so I think Moses felt like there was a betrayal of sorts for these tribes to ask to settle over there outside of the, of the promised land, maybe because they thought the real estate was so good and, and maybe because they weren't trusting in the Lord for his provision. Moses was also concerned that this might be a way for these tribes to get out of their commitment to the rest of Israel. That if they settle across the Jordan, somewhat geographically removed, that they wouldn't make good on their commitment to help all of Israel, especially militarily. That would be a big deal if they didn't pull their fair share. And so Moses confronts them about it. And again, you can read about that in Numbers 32 if you want. He confronts them, and they pledge to Moses full support. Right? We're going to settle over here. We're going to build houses. Our, our cattle and our kids are going to get settled. But we won't get settled until all of Israel has received their inheritance. We will fight for all of Israel. We'll take up arms. But we won't have our rest until we've helped all of the rest of Israel obtain their inheritance. So that's how it went down in Numbers 32. And so now that it's about to be go time, Joshua's kind of wondering, okay, are you going to make good on this commitment that you gave to my predecessor? And so he again addresses these tribes because he knows that Israel is about to need all the help they can get. And so Joshua confronts them and asks them these questions. Because it would have been easy now for these tribes to say, oh yeah, about that. You know, times have changed. So it would not have come as the least bit of a surprise, especially given Israel's knack for not following through on commitments. 
for these tribes to have reneged at this point and said, nah, sure is nice over here. We're just going to stay put. But when Joshua inquires about their present commitment, he gets a very strong response from them. And that's recorded in in verses 16 through 18 of of chapter 1. Got there on the screen. And they answer Joshua, All that you've commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, well, uh, so we will obey you. It's the thought that counts, right? Uh, Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So it's almost a surprising response that we get from these two tribes in the Transjordan. They're going to make good on their word. They're going to hold their commitment. And this, frankly, really must be the sovereign hand of God moving in their hearts. It would have been far too easy for them to take this opportunity and say, eh, I don't think so. But I think the, the hand of God's been at work in their hearts, moving them to make good on their commitment. Right. So that's encouraging to see, and that helps us understand the end of chapter 1. God moving in the hearts of his people. But perhaps it's even more encouraging to see God at work in the hearts of his enemies. And that's our second point. And this gets us into chapter 2, and it gets us into the story of Rahab. And so two spies are sent to check things out, especially Jericho. And so verse 1 begins by telling us the spies go and they enter the house of a prostitute. Rutro, what have we here? But I don't think that we have cause for concern. Because Scripture doesn't indicate that anything untoward happens. And you and I both know that The Scripture's not the least bit shy about giving us the lowdown when impropriety does happen. It's a pretty gritty and honest account quite often. Far more honest than it needs to be, we think, sometimes. So we don't think anything uh, improper happened here. It actually could have been a pretty strategic move on the part of these spies. Because where might you go if you wanted a certain level of anonymity? Where might you go if you didn't want folks asking a lot of questions about who you are and where did you come from? Where might you go if you also wanted to perhaps find a crowd that had some loose lips and would be ready to divulge the goings-on in the land? What's the latest? What's going on politically, militarily? Not a bad choice. And so you know the basic gist of the story, right? The king of Jericho finds out that spies are there, sends out a search party. So Rahab hides the men and lies to the cops in essence. Folks get really upset about her lying. They get all bothered by it, right? I'm going to save that as a loose end to to tackle next week, right? She turns the search party away. Hurry and catch them. And then she has a little talk with our spies. 
And what she says is amazing. It's amazing first what she has to say about Jericho. And then it's even more amazing what she has to say about herself. So let's deal with Jericho first. Uh, Verse 9 is a good place to start. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Now this is quite a shock. You mean to tell me that it's the Canaanites who are the ones that are quaking in their boots? Because the report of the first set of spies that got sent into the land, that's in Numbers 13, right? Remember, 12 spies sent, 10 come back saying, ah, they're big and scary. It's a really strong city. Wah! Right? That's in essence the first report. But now Rahab's telling our two spies from this expedition that it's actually the other way around and it's the Canaanites who are saying, fear has fallen. They're melting away, she says. And she goes on to explain why in verses 10 and 11. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Their hearts melted. In their hearts and in their minds, they've already lost. They are defeated. They've heard about what God has already done, and God, as He's sovereignly in control of every heart, has caused the news of this to fall on their hearts with great weight. And so we see the sovereign hand of God as He moves even the hearts of His enemies. Now I want to get to our third point, but I want us to pause for just a second. Let's think about Joshua chapter 2. Let's think about this story of Rahab. Y'all, we've got to pay attention to why it's here because it doesn't have to be here. This story could be removed. We could read from the end of chapter 1, jump right to chapter 3, and not miss a beat. The story isn't essential to the story of the book as a whole. So it's got to be important that it's here. We're we're just supposed to find out about Rahab for some reason, and I think it's because she's got so much to teach us. She's a very unlikely teacher, right? That the people of God should learn from a Canaanite. 
and that they should learn from a Canaanite prostitute is all the more scandalous and, and humbling. And so we see God's sovereign hand moving in the hearts of those that he's calling to himself. You know, Rahab's faith is, is pretty amazing. And, and she gets commended for it two times in the New Testament, right? She's part of the, the famous hall of faith in, in Hebrews 11. But there are a bunch of people there in, in Hebrews 11. The more staggering place that she's mentioned is James 2 where only two people are called out for their faith. Abraham and Rahab. Two examples of amazing faith. All right, so what made it so great? Let's look at verse 9 again. Verse 9 begins, I know. Now that's pretty astounding. When here's this Canaanite prostitute and she knows, she's convinced, while the rest of Israel is still waiting and biting their nails and, oh, can we really do this? Are you sure? I don't know. Remember that, that 10 out of those 12 spies said, oh, it's too big. It's too great. city's too strong. People are too tall. It'll never happen. But Rahab says, I know. I know. So, so why so confident? Why so sure, Rahab? Because verse 10, right? Four. Four. We've heard. We've heard. We heard what God did. And, and she connected the dots. Right? She connected the dots. She saw how God had acted powerfully for His people. Right? She saw how God had acted powerfully for His people and she saw how God had acted powerfully against those that got in the way. And she connected the dots and she concluded, she said, uh-oh, this does not bode well for Canaan. And, and she gets this. And she gets what the Israelites should have gotten. Right? The Israelites should have gotten this. They should have been able to look back and connect these dots. Right? And even what has happened here with, with the weak-kneed Canaanites, even that was foretold. Exodus 15, as you're reading through Exodus, the narrative, uh, is there's this little jolt and it just sort of breaks you up with, with chapter 15 and this song of Moses. It's like, a psalm accidentally got placed in the book of Exodus. And it, it's this song, it's this psalm, if you will, that happens right after the crossing of the Red Sea. And God foretold what would happen to their enemies because of His mighty acts. And you see in these, in these verses 14 through 16, the peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, 
pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Y'all, this is such a tremendous lesson for us to learn. And I mentioned to you last week, right? If we're going to trust God with today and tomorrow, we've got to look back and remember what He's done for us in the past. We have to. We've got to remember who God is. We've got to remember what He's like. We've got to remember what He's done. And then we've got to connect those dots. And we've got to say, all right, if this is who He is, and if this is the kind of thing that He tends to do, if this is what He's like, then connect those dots and forecast that onto your situation. Forecast that onto your tomorrow. And so when Rahab and the Canaanites did that, when they said, all right, well, this is who this God appears to be, and this is what He does and what He's like, and dot, 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 oh no. And so for God's enemies, that's the case. But for God's people, it's, all right, let's look and see, okay, dot, 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 Oh, more blessing, more provision, more protection, more faithfulness, more covenant-keeping, steadfast love and mercy. See, once Rahab connects the dots, because it seems that she's connecting the dots on a little different level than the rest of the Canaanites, She's connected these dots and it brings her to an incredible confession of faith. Look, look in verse 11. Right. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There's no spirit left. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And you've got to realize this is an amazing thing for a Canaanite to say because the Canaanites got tons of gods. They got a God for everything. And for Rahab to come out and say, not just that Israel's God, Yahweh, is a God, but to say He's the God, y'all, that's big and that's important. But keep paying attention here. Because if... Rahab had stopped here and she had just said, Oh, Yahweh is the God. That would be nice. That would be accurate. But it would be totally insufficient. And she would have died with the rest of the Canaanites if she had stopped there and said, Oh, Israel's God, Yahweh is the God. Had she stopped there, she would have been destroyed, although she had some nice orthodox thinking. But she doesn't stop there. She's got this right understanding of who God is, and she feels a desperate sense of need. And so her, her right belief, her, her, her orthodox belief, is combined with a desperate sense of of need. And y'all, that's the winning combo. 
See, she knew she needed rescue. She knew she needed a place of refuge. She knew she needed mercy. And so right after this amazing confession of faith in verse 11, comes 12 and 13, and she says, you've got to save me. You've got to save me. You've got to promise by the name of your God that you'll save me and my family. And so in that moment, Rahab ceases to be a Canaanite. See, this is why her faith was so great. She understood two essential truths. She got and she understood that wrath is coming. And that refuge is available. She got that. She had a sense somehow. Somehow being through the sovereign hand of God. That wrath was coming, and she doesn't seem to have any qualms with that. She's not crying foul. She's not saying, well, that doesn't seem right. Right? She even recounts the Amorites being devoted to destruction. Right? When you see that language, right, so that's men, women, and children being killed. Right? And that's a tough concept that we're going to deal with at some point in Joshua. Right? Can God still be a God of love and have His people devote other peoples to destruction? Right? That's a tough question. Right? And we'll deal with it head on. Just not in today's passage. It's not the best place to look for it. But even with that, Rahab doesn't say, oh, that doesn't seem fair. She hears that story and fairness is not the issue in her mind. It is fear. She fears, but she also hopes. Right, so wrath is coming and the right response is fear. Refuge is available and the right response is hope. And so she cries out for rescue. See, by our sin and rebellion, we're the objects of wrath. It's coming. But through Christ's self-sacrifice of Himself, refuge is available And here again is a place where it's just not enough to intellectually think, oh, there's refuge available. That's good. Rahab's faith was great because she got all this and she connected all the dots and she cried out, save me. Save me. Give me a promise that you'll save me and my family. 
Now, we clearly see God's sovereign hand as he moves in, in Rahab's heart, moving her to, to trust him. Right? That's the only way that we can explain this, how a Canaanite would come to these conclusions. But don't miss the rest of this. Right? There's even more to God's sovereign hand moving here that is just amazing. Right? Because how is it that, that, that these two spies just happen to end up on her rooftop? Having this very conversation that's recorded in Scripture. How did that happen? Well, it just so happened that Joshua decided to send out two spies. And, and even if, as you look at this, y'all, this is so very different from the first time the spies were sent out. The first time the spies were sent out, it's recorded in Numbers 13, and this was some very specific instructions, right? Uh, he sent them, he said, go up into the, to the Negev, go up into the hill country, see what the land is, and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in, are, are they camps or are they strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees, you know, this huge long list. Here's what you've got to go find out. Bring us back a report. Um, but here Joshua just says, um, go view the land, especially Jericho. He didn't know who Rahab was, but it's almost as if he did. It's almost as if the Lord was leading him because the Lord had somebody to rescue. And he was going to move heaven and earth to make sure that she got rescued because before the foundation of the world, he set his affection on her and said, you know what, Rahab, even though you're a Canaanite, even though you're a prostitute, you're mine and I love you. I'm going to go get you. I don't even think Joshua cared what kind of report came back from these spies. Right? Remember, he was one of the optimistic two that came back and said, hey, I think we can do this. He's not fearing now. There's no reason for him to send out spies other than the Lord's hand moved him to do it because he needed to go get Rahab. Sovereign hand of the Lord moves to, to pursue the one he placed his affection on. You know, I, I, as we were practicing the songs this morning, I was thinking about this, think about the, the song that we're going to sing in just a minute and the chorus of that song. And I could just hear Rahab singing it with us. Hallelujah, he has found me. And he's the same God today. Same God that moved heaven and earth to go get Rahab and rescue her, which I hope brings a great sense of marvel to all of our hearts because of how he's rescued us, many of us. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're still in the middle of your being rescued. Right? You might be here this morning and you're, you don't even know why you're here. Maybe you think it just so happened that you ended up here this morning. But know this, the sovereign hand of God is moving. 
He's moving to accomplish all that He desires. He's moving to bring good to His people. And He's moving to bring glory to Himself. Let's pray. Oh God, You are good. And we look at how You pursued Rahab how you worked in her heart and then you worked in all the circumstances and situations around her so that you could get her. And you did. You're a good God like that. We thank you for how you are a God who relentlessly pursues sinners, even us. praise you. We love you because you loved us first and because you pursued us. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Let's sing.